You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Magdal. Remind you, you can follow us on Twitter at Locked On WBB or at Summit Hoops, two T's in honor of Pat for 24-7 women's basketball coverage. And make sure if you like and enjoy the podcast, you uh, subscribe, rate, and review us as well. want to make sure more people hear about the women's game. And I am here with somebody who's certainly provided uh, more than her share uh, of headlines uh, and highlights through the years. And uh, that's Sherry Cole, uh, head coach at the University of Oklahoma. Sherry, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you, Howard. I appreciate it. Please, I want to start because here we are. It is Bracketology Week. And uh, to be frank, I've been spending the better part of this year uh, puzzling over your team, uh, but that's from the outside because there's so much that's interesting to me. I want to go and read to you the following, which is the non-conference schedule from 2009-2010, and it is Mercer, Georgia, TCU, UT Arlington, Arkansas, Marist, Army, Creighton, Cal State Fullerton, and then Tennessee. And now you guys had uh, Connecticut uh, later on in the year as well. It, it's a perfectly solid non-conference schedule. Obviously, the year ends up with you in the Final Four. I, I want to compare it, though, to what you had in 2017-2018. And sort of, I get tired just seeing the gamut that you ran through here. <laughs> you start with Belmont. Uh, you have DePaul, at DePaul, by the way, SMU, at Colorado State, at Oregon, at Little Rock, home against Florida, at South Dakota State, South Florida, New Mexico. You then go back to back Yukon and Texas. Uh, Texas obviously being you know part of the conference schedule as well, but just an absolute amazing schedule to go through. Uh, you guys have a strength of schedule you know, at or near the top, depending on uh, who's measuring it in the country. And I guess I wonder, whether that's a conscious change, you know, maybe it's unfair to pick two particular years and, and cherry pick those two, but whether you have come to think that the non-conference schedule uh, had to be boosted to that point. That is absolutely a fantastic question, Howard, and I'm so glad that you posed it because the answer is not as simple as you might think it is. Mm -hmm. It is my goal and has always been my goal to try to develop a schedule that puts us in the top 10 to 15 strength of schedule every year. That comes from a personal belief that if you want to be the best, you have to measure yourself by the best. You don't learn anything about your team if you go play somebody that you can beat by 30 and you know you can beat them by 30. So the aggressive scheduling is a philosophy that really has not changed throughout the year. So when you look at, I think it was 9-10 that you pulled and mm -hmm. then uh, and compare it to this year, there wasn't a philosophical shift in what happened with those two schedules. Uh, that schedule in 9-10 was very difficult as well. As you mentioned, that Connecticut just happened to come in the middle of our conference play. It wasn't before conference play began. Right. So when you put Connecticut and Tennessee uh, in that one, it, it at Georgia, you amp that up pretty quick. But, but what happened with this year's schedule? Um, obviously, same philosophy, but we were in the PK80 event uh, in Oregon uh, five years ago. Mm -hmm. Our athletic director, uh, working with Nike, 
put that event together. That, that's been on the books for five years. Um, Kelly Graves wasn't at Oregon. Sabrina wasn't at Oregon. Uh, we weren't even supposed to play Oregon when it started out. <laughs> it was a six-team tournament. I think it was an eight-team tournament that went to a six, that went to a four, that went to uh, two different teams playing. Right. And and it wasn't even supposed to be on Oregon's home floor. So you take that one game just as a as a example for all the the unknowns that can occur over a period of time, and that went from uh, probably a, a pretty winnable situation or a couple of wins to playing Oregon on their home floor. Uh, after they go to the Elite Eight and have all their guys back. So that game got really, really tough, That and that's something that we hadn't planned for at the outset. When we scheduled Belmont, uh, where'd Belmont come from? Uh, right. I mean, they, you know, they, they a terrific season last year. They've had a terrific season this year after we popped them to start the season. Beat, they won a ton of games. Beat them by the 23. Yeah, now they're, now they're a top 25 team. Uh, one of many, by the way. You, you have... You, you took care of business against the unranked opponents since December 9th. You've won 12, you went twelve and one against unranked opponents, but also uh, eleven uh, of the top twenty-five opponents you've played on the road this season. You had four top ten matchups, so uh, there there was no shortage of those. And, and I guess what's interesting to me about what you're bringing up is sort of two parts to that. One is how hard is it to plan season by season. How, let's say, for lack of a better phrase, how high you're going to turn the volume based on the team that you have and, you know, whether uh, you can moderate that, uh, you know, when you're trying to make a schedule that oftentimes the plans are made a couple of years in advance, uh, or are you just looking to make it as tough as possible and that's the way you think it ought to be now going forward? Well, you're you're right when there are all kinds of variables when you schedule a couple of years out, for sure. With the ever-changing landscape of transfers now, I don't know if from one year to the next if you really know if what you scheduled is going to be accurate based on your own team and somebody else's team. It's just everything's in flux. The, mm-hmm. the, the landscape is so volatile there. But there, the fact that we played so many of these tough games on the road – is a reflection of another part of our philosophy, which is we want to take our kids home. And Gabby Ortiz is from Chicago. Mm. Would you choose ordinarily to go play DePaul on their home floor? Probably not. <laughs> Doug Bruno's unbelievable. Yes. But I wanted to take Gabby Ortiz back to Chicago to be near. She's obviously from Racine, Wisconsin. But you try to find a team close to home to take a kid home, and Doug was the one that would play us. And right. so I'm taking that kid home her senior year. Well, that's a really tough game. Um, so those kinds of things, they, they, they pop up. And, and, and by the make, way, you, you mentioned that Doug was one who was willing to play us, and I wondered that as well, whether the sure. fact that it seems like there are more teams embracing this. And, and you know, part of this seems to me the, the NCAA is rewarding teams for playing more difficult schedules and penalizing them for playing inferior schedules. You, you see Maryland uh, ending up with a three seed last year uh, in large part because of the strength of what ultimately was their non-conference schedule. Is it? Are you hearing more yeses? Because uh, I, I can't imagine that most teams most years want to put you on the schedule if you're looking to have a little bit easier road on the out-of-conference play. Yeah, I, I think what coaches, what the message that we're all trying to share with one another and all trying to um, carry forward is that we are the caretakers of our game. Hmm. We are responsible for the growth of women's basketball period. We have to do a great job 
by playing compelling matchups, by putting our teams in situations to improve and progress. That is the only way the game will continue to grow and parity will continue to grow. If, if you don't do that, our game is absolutely strangled and starved. And so there are those of us who are choosing to do that. Doug, I'm glad you mentioned that. A stalwart, always a guy who's willing to go play anybody mm-hmm. and play them wherever and um, put his team in a situation to grow and learn. And I do think uh, the committee rewards that. I think it's important to them. I think it's our charge. It's the charge that we've been given as caretakers of the game to do that. And so I can't imagine not only not being rewarded for it, but being punished for doing that thing. Let's talk about some of the numbers and try and break that down. And I'm curious how you see it and what, what your own particular case is. Uh, you know, as courtesy uh, of your own athletics department, um, and Tyler Pig does a great job uh, information-wise on that side. Only once in the 22-year history of the Big 12 has a team that finished tied for third place or better not received at least an at-large bid to the NCAA. Uh, you guys played 21 top 100 RPI opponents, uh, and uh, that is among the very best in the country. Each of your losses in Big 12 play came against uh, a ranked opponent. Uh, so again, you know, you don't have any bad losses on that schedule when you look. And the strength of the schedule, overall of two, RPI of 34, which uh, is usually more than sufficient to get a team into the NCAA tournament. I guess just, you know, to start at the big picture side of it, do you have any doubt in your mind that this is an NCAA tournament team? No, I don't. Uh, If you look at who you think are the top 64 teams in the country, uh, I I don't think that that's a question, Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not we fit in that group. I do, however, understand the system. I certainly understand that there are teams who get in because of the automatic bid process, which is what makes March Madness fantastic. So it's not necessarily the best 64 teams. There are automatic bids that come in, and so these at-large berths, then the conversation becomes among this pool of teams that that you deem to be maybe the quote-unquote best 64 in the country, um, which ones of them deserve the positions that are available. And that's where the numbers come into play. And if you look at our numbers comparatively to others who are sitting on this proverbial bubble, um, they're our numbers are fantastic. Mm-hmm. The strength of schedule, the RPI, the 11-7 and seven conference finish, the tie for third in our league, uh, the number of wins against top 100 RPI teams. Um, we put ourselves in a position to win that argument, I really believe. Is it challenging for you? Just Do you, do you ever go back and look at this schedule and see, uh, you know, that, that DePaul game could have been a win? You know, instead it's <laughs> it's a three point loss. You know, you're you're sort of right one there. One of the best. Yes. One of the best women's college basketball games of the oh, year. Oh, spectacular! It was like it could be one of those games they play on ESPN Classic over and over because people would just love to watch it, it, whether it's this year, next year, or in ten years. It was a great game for the fans and for all the people involved, and the kid makes an unbelievable step away, fall away, deep three at the final buzzer of the second overtime I just can't imagine that 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 kind of thing is what would keep you uh, be that that hair that split that kept you off the bubble or it's amazing, you out right? of the 64 oh it was I, incredible I mean and you, you think- can also 
Yeah, no, no, I, I was just going to say, you, you had a couple of classics like that. You had that, but even, you know, that game you had against Texas, your, your opener in, in Big 12 play, it, it was just a lot of players making plays back and forth. I, I love watching the team anyway, as we've talked about in the past for uh, some reasons we'll get into in a moment. But just that game was back and forth with two teams that, you know, you came away from that game and obviously no one's questioning whether Texas is in the field. Uh, you know, they're almost certainly in a down number two seed, but you're going toe-to-toe with them right down uh, to the last couple of minutes. Well, I would also point to our game at Waco against Baylor mm-hmm. late in February where at two minutes to go, it's a two-point game, and we were never out of that game. It was a fight the whole way through, and I think we've proven that we can hold our own. We fought Connecticut I, I, as well as anybody has fought them on their home floor earlier this year. We lost to Oklahoma State on a a last-second inbound play that we scored on and were Mm -hmm. called for a travel in. So you're you're going back and you're you're for, in the blink of an eye, Mm -hmm. there are two or three games that would have been different. I mean, in the blink of an eye, it came down to one possession. And so when you look at that, and, and what's funny to me is if we had won 19 games, if we had won 19 games, say three of those that went to the wire, we just the very last play goes the other way. Right. We might be in a conversation for hosting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because look at our numbers. Yeah, and, so and that's that, the thing that's just crazy to me. And and as it is right now, so you know Charlie Cream, the bracketologist over at ESPN, and uh, Russ Steinberg, who does a great job on bracketology uh, over at the Summit, has you just in that first group out. And, you know, right there. And the question is, if you're that close and the NCAA is looking to reward teams for going out and playing anybody, uh, you know, do you get an opportunity? You know, are are you as much as a quality team an opportunity to make a statement? And uh, so, you know, that's the thing that will be really interesting uh, for me. I I just for from your perspective, I'm just wondering internally. How closely, obviously you, you following it and you're on top of all of these numbers, how closely is your team following it? Do you have uh, amateur bracketologists on the roster? And what are those conversations like? We don't have those conversations. Our conversations with our team are, what are you doing when a shot goes up? Are you running back or are you rebounding? Because mm-hmm. you don't get to do nothing. Those are the kind of conversations we're having <laughs> right now. We're trying to get better still every single day. And I think any time spent wasted on conjecture is just that. It's wasted time. Why would we spend our energy on that? I am familiar with the numbers because, as you mentioned earlier, Tyler does a great job and he puts it on paper and shows it to me. Mm-hmm. That's about the amount of time I spend with the numbers. Right. I'm down there cutting practice film trying to show them how we can do a better job turning defense into offense and executing with sureness and all those things that are going to put us in a position to win games once we get included in that bracket. Let's talk about a couple of players who have done as much as anything uh, to help you win games and and before you do I just I want to talk about the big picture because it's worth noting that you got stronger as the year went on you had uh, a terrific uh, late season run in in the Big 12, which is just just not that I have to tell you, but a brutal, drooling uh, conference to play in, uh, top to bottom. But what I love about what you did with your team this year, so last year you had 12 players uh, with at least 100 minutes. This year uh, you had nine players, period, who played for you. And you, of that nine, of that group of nine, of the top seven, 
six of the seven were double digits in assist percentage. And it was just, just an interesting, fun uh, offensive flow that it seemed like you were able to find. But it took a while to get there. And uh, I go back to the comments you made after University of Florida, you know, after an 80 to 61 loss relatively early when you challenged this team about leadership. Here we are a few months later. What kind of leadership have you gotten and who really rose to that challenge in your mind? You know, uh, such an, uh, an interesting question, Howard. I, it takes a long time to become. You know, you just don't, you don't flip a switch and suddenly you are what your, your, hopefully your, your final product is always evolving. There is no such thing as final. You just continue as a human being to grow and change and progress. But teams take a long time to become, too. And as each one of those players is going through their transition periods into accepting new roles or handling expectations or um, navigating through pressure, all those things that, that college kids have to experience, uh, your, your team identity is also at the mercy of those individual changes and adjustments. So there's a lot of moving parts there. And what I think this team has done and is even still working to continue to do as recently as practice yesterday afternoon is making sure that what they deliver is the job that our team has to have done. And so what Gabby Ortiz does is different from what Shayna Pellington does, which is different from what Maddie Manning does, which is different from what Ana Yunusa does, et cetera. And what, what the seniors have done, the four seniors, um, Nisi Williams being the fourth uh, in addition to those <clears throat> three starters, excuse me, is they've, and Gabby every day brings her enthusiasm and energy. Every day, Nisi brings her effort. Every day, Vivi brings her edge. Every day, Maddie brings her information, the relay of information. If those four guys do that on a given day, we win the game. And so it's been getting each one of those to um, maybe grasp and have the capacity to consistently bring that thing that they're responsible for, and they've been able to do it more and more and more and more. Are they batting a 1,000 right now? No. They didn't all bring it yesterday in practice, but they're working toward that end, and when those things happen consistently, we're very, very successful, and it's happening more often than not right now. So let's talk about what Gabby is doing, especially on the offensive end. And, and when you look year over year and you know, asking her uh, to take a significant load offensively, and, and again, with a, with a smaller uh, rotation that you have, she's managed to bump up her true shooting percentage. She was around 50% last year, and she's at 56% this year. Uh, have you noticed an improvement in the overall quality of shots? What, what is it that you're seeing that's allowing her uh, to find that next level of efficiency on the court for you? She's not having to make as many decisions. We moved her off the ball, and she's playing as a shooting guard now, and she's just not having to make as many decisions. When she catches it, uh, priority number one is always shoot it. If you can, shoot it. And then if you can't, then you attack. And if you can't attack, you pass. And it's just that um, almost like a quarterback checking off reads, mm -hmm. just recognizing when you catch what's the defender's threshold and what's your response to that threshold. And then it's really simple after that. So I think that taking that burden of having to make so many decisions off of her has made her a more efficient offensive player. 
when uh, and as of right now, over at the summit, uh, we we project her as a third round pick in this year's WNBA draft. Do you see her as uh, at the next level, someone who uh, comes off the bench, provides some instant scoring? Uh, you know, what what do you think her fit is at the professional level? Well, I think her ability to shoot the three is uncanny. Um, she made 53 in a row in practice a couple of weeks ago. Just it, it's uh, it's really almost mind-boggling. The challenge for Gab moving forward and having that that real thing, that one thing that she'll need to do at the pro level. Which every kid, and I need to say this too, every kid who makes that that transfer from college to pro, unless you're Stewie or um, uh, Maya Moore, uh, Elena Deladon, there are an elite few. You're going to have a niche, a thing that that's going to get you minutes on the court and help your team win. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you can't do other things, but it means that you have to do that thing if you're going to go on the floor and play. That's right. just the nature of the beast because of, of uh, so few teams and, and the number of players. You're, it's a high level of competition. Gabby's challenge will be, can you knock those same shots down in game situations? If you only get two, can you hit those two? Uh, because you don't get the volume, and uh, you have to be able to transfer in the face of a great deal of pre- pressure and expectation. Because if you don't make those, there's somebody else waiting in the wings who's going to come in and then make those. And is she capable? That from a technical standpoint, a skill standpoint, oh, absolutely, one of the purest shooters I've ever seen. Yeah, we we have a projected to go 31 to Washington. I know Mike Tebow would certainly not hesitate to use her in that situation, and uh, that would be a good fit with his offense, I think. Uh, the other player of yours that we have projected uh, going uh, this time in the second round uh, is Vini's uh, Pierre Lewis. And I just want to isolate a single number that's my favorite. I, you know, her rebounding is has been a constant, although it got even better this year. Uh, at both offensive uh, and defensive uh, ends of the floor. But her assist percentage was 7.8% last year, and it's 16%. It's you know a number you more associate with, uh, with a wing player, if not a two-guard. Take me through that process and uh, what has allowed her to become this level of a passer for you uh, and facilitator. Well, she her passing ability has improved every year that she's been here. Number one, she's a smart kid. Um, she sees things well. She is a very talented athlete. You put all those things together and get players to move and space accordingly around her, and that assist number is going to go up. I think the biggest um, adjustment or transformation, maybe is a better word, uh, in, in her game from last year to this year is a decreased number of turnovers. And mm-hmm. so much of that comes from being physically centered, uh, staying on her feet. She stays on her feet a whole lot more now than she used to. And when she stays on her feet and has a low center of gravity, she finds people and makes beautiful, very guard-like passes. So she is extremely capable of that. And it doesn't surprise me that that number has transformed the way it has. In your mind, is she someone who... Uh, can start at the next level? I mean, what, what do you see when you think of what her capabilities are uh, at the WNBA level? She has a, a, a high ceiling. Uh, the kid is very capable. When she is engaged and dialed in and intent about doing a thing, you're not going to stop her from doing it. There have been games, there have been quarters, 
There have been stretches of play. There have been isolated possessions where she's as nimble and explosive and skilled as any post player in the country. It all depends upon how good she wants to be, how often she wants to be that engaged and that intentional. It's a pleasure to watch her, and like I said, a pleasure to watch your team as well. I I hope we get the chance to do it uh, come NCAA time, but as you uh, wait that out on Monday night, what are your plans and do you have any uh, rituals uh, that you include when it comes to Selection Monday at a point where there's no more film to be breaking down? Now it's just a question of waiting to hear uh, your name get called. Well, actually, we do all, always get together. We watch it as a team together, um, and we will we will certainly do that. Uh, but the, the week, you know, this time that we're in right now, leading up all the way until I mean, we'll practice Monday, all the way up until that point, there's plenty of film to watch because it's still about us, and it always has been about us and our improvement. And this week has been no different um, than any other week in terms of uh, – what we're trying to accomplish may be different than a couple of weeks ago when we were, you know, had three Big 12 games and you're trying to put together game plans. But practice is about growth and improvement, and that's exactly what we're continuing to do. And as I told our team when we returned from the Big 12 tournament, uh, what do you have to lose if you plan and work and get better this week and then you don't play? Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you have to lose? What if you sit around and – crunch numbers and whine about things and and worry and don't get better and then your name gets called what have you lost right so let's plan and prepare and i do believe that we'll be in the tournament because i believe our our track record this season the numbers that we've produced um show that and i i believe that that what we've done is has put ourselves in a position to definitely be one of the best 64 teams in the country. And I think we'll have our opportunity. Then it will be up to us to take hold of that and do something with it. Well, I, I, I don't think I, I don't even think legally you're allowed to hold the NCAA tournament without you since the turn of the century. Uh, that has not <laughs> occurred. So I uh, certainly you know, hope that the committee follows through with that. And Sherry Cole, thank you for always having your eye on the big picture Uh, for the way in which you're growing and developing your team. Thank you, Howard. Appreciate it so much. Thank you, and enjoy that snow. Stay warm. We certainly will. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Lockdown Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Meddahl, and we're going to have a little bit of a New Jersey corner, and not just because of uh, getting to watch Caitlin Flaherty uh, hit threes uh, by the bushel, Uh, for uh, University of Michigan or seeing the uh, remarkable latest Mabry sister uh, star down the shore. But I'm going to talk a little bit uh, here in Bergen County. And so the person uh, who is best able to do that, uh, someone who is my go-to on New Jersey High School on Division Three is Sarah Summer, who has written for me at the Summit and at G3 Hoops as well. Uh, Sarah, how are you enjoying this snow day so far? It's been all right. It's good to be indoors, though. <laughs> yes, I, I certainly agree with that. Well, so Sarah and I, Sarah, we've known each other a little while now, but uh, we really uh, bonded this year over uh, a nearby team uh, not just because it happened to be the uh, high school right near uh, both of our houses, but because 
Uh, it's a really remarkable program, and that's uh, over at Pasadena Valley High School. Their season ended this week, but we didn't really want to let their season go without talking a little, a little bit about it. Uh, and you can't talk about Pasadena Valley High School without starting uh, with Coach Jeff Jasper. Uh, Sarah spent some time embedded with the program, and I highly recommend her deep dive that she wrote over at the summit. Uh, but just take me through just initially your thoughts about Coach Jasper, what you saw. Um, first of all, I have to thank you for the opportunity to write that story. It was an incredible experience because Jeff Jasper is an amazing guy. Um, he is just so genuine as a person. You know, when you talk to him, you feel like you're really being listened to. And the best thing is that it's not just a feeling, it's a fact. He really values interpersonal relationships no matter who you are. And that's what his team is built on. Um, he was actually on a radio show, uh, WCBS, recently, and he talked about how his program has never been about, you know, let's just focus on the basketball and hope that we get along. You know, mm -hmm. the, the basketball is certainly important, and as we see, he preaches the fundamentals. But as good as Valley is as a basketball team, they're even better as people, as teammates. Um, and that all starts with Coach Jasper, for sure. Something that's really striking to me and, and allows them, I think, to punch above their weight. Because you have to understand, Pasadena Valley High School is a public high school. Uh, Jeff Jasper cannot recruit players from out of state or elsewhere around. Uh, and so the thing, I, I saw them win a bunch of games. But the, the game that I think impressed me the most was a game I saw them lose, which is they were playing Saddle River Day School, uh, which is, you know, a basketball power uh, has, you know, produced players like, like Sarah Summer, for instance. And so, you know, <laughs> to have a team, though, I, I mean, joking aside, it, it's, a, it's a team that gets players from Long Island, that gets players from all over. And Bergen County Championship went down to the final seconds. Uh, ultimately, Saddle River Day won 60 to 55. But it really came down to a system where it wasn't just the players making smart decisions on the court, but it was clearly these players really knew and understood each other. Yeah, and I was so impressed. I think you tweeted this, too, about how Valley did not look overwhelmed one bit. They were so ready for that moment, and a lot of that is the way Jasper prepares them, but also so much of it is who they are as people. I mean, they were down double digits in that game towards the end of the third into the fourth quarter, and they came back to cut it to, what, two or three points mm -hmm. down the stretch. Um, so really, I was so impressed with their determination, their effort, really fighting the entire game. And, I mean, we, we've seen their effort on both ends of the floor, and that game, it was just so obvious the way they go for loose balls, battled for rebounds. Um, they're, they're just incredible. And to go against a school that, you know, you wouldn't think a public school had a great chance against and have the performance they had. It was really an impressive game. I mean, look, Michelle Sador, who's the star of that Saddle River Day School, she was offered by C. Vivian Stringer at Rutgers when she was in eighth grade. I mean, that's the the <laughs> level of opponent that you were talking about. And, and yes, I, I mean, she had a great game and scored, I think, 35 points in that one. But Bree Wan, uh, who was one of the graduating seniors, uh, from this just excellent Pasadena Valley team. I mean, she scored 31 of her own, if memory serves. Uh, she's on her way to Pace next year to play. But you and I have had a back and forth about, you know, look, is she a D1 player? 
And when you see her continue to score and have her game and have that quick release, uh, it's hard to imagine that she couldn't do extremely well at that D1 level. But, uh, you know, a pair of Brianna's, Brie Wong and Bree Smith, really led the way shooting from distance. But the most striking thing was that all five of these players are capable of playing that true inside-outside game. He has that five-out system. You've seen them play for years. Is that typical? Oh, yeah, it's totally typical. This team, I mean, it looks exactly the same as the teams I've watched 12, 13 years ago. You know, the players change, but the system has been the same. And when they have the talent that they had this year, I mean, it's just really beautiful to watch. In terms of Bree Smith, I mean, she's so she's a junior. She recently scored her thousandth point. Um, I, I brought my daughters to a lot of these games, and it was so striking to me, both when Bree Wan did it and Bree Smith did it, there was a system in place for the thousand-point scorer. You know, the, the timeout is called, the balloons come out, the flowers come out. Even that celebration was efficient, like in a very assembly line style, uh, to make sure, you know, there was an understanding. And you understand why if you walk out of the Pascat Valley High School gym as you're leaving uh, in the near exit, there's a list of the thousand point scores and it goes back uh, almost 40 years, uh, which makes sense because Jeff Jasper's been coaching there since, I believe, 1972. Um, And it's just player after player who comes in and is empowered and succeeds. But what's really striking to me is how many of those players come back and you were talking to uh, for your story and are just really connected to the program. Oh, yeah. Um, This program is just so tradition-bound. Jasper and the team called it the Long Gold Line, all of the former players and current players. And the culture there is just outstanding. And, yeah, I mean, it's really um, incredible to see all the different banners and lists of players and their accomplishments on the walls of Pascac Valley's gym. And they just keep adding new uh, plaques and displays because they just you know, keep accomplishing more and more. And now, you know, there's a an article about Jasper and the thousands win. There's a nice thousand banner with the smiley faces. It's mm-hmm. just, it's really cool to see. All of which, by the way, emphasizes how impressive it was that Old Tapan came into that gym on Monday afternoon and uh, escaped with a sectional title, winning 35-32 in just an absolutely absurdly intense defensive battle. Uh, and so, but, you know, before we, uh, we move on from there, I do want to touch briefly on Old Japan, who plays, by the way, uh, now it'll be Thursday night against Somerville, uh, you know, continuing in the state tournament. They have a center uh, by the name of Alex George, and uh, her story is an interesting one. Uh, she's a, a big, strong kid uh, who is capable of understanding the game, terrific rebounder, very sound fundamentally, uh, six block shots, I believe, in the game uh, on Monday, and was a key part of a defensive stop as time wound down. You know, what have been your impressions watching Alex George play, and how impressive is it that Alex George went out and managed to get three sectional titles in four years in a section where Pascat Valley stood in the way? I mean, I think you you were at the game this week. You saw what a difference maker she is. And you look at last year when Valley won the sectional title, Ultapan didn't have Alex George. So she's clearly made a big impact for them. Um, it's also interesting to note that Ultapan lost in the county quarterfinals, and so they didn't face Valley in the county semifinals. It's 
you know, who knows how that game would have gone. But she's definitely an amazing player. I see similarities between her and Kelly Petro, although Petro, I think, has Mm -hmm. more guard elements to her game for sure. But Mm -hmm. George is a force. She's very dominant. I know Valley knows that, is aware of that. And um, that game this week, a three-point loss, certainly a battle. But Ultapan just is also a very talented team. We would be remiss not to talk about Kelly Petro, who's uh, headed to Holy Cross on a full-ride scholarship next year, uh, coming out of Pascat Valley. But I agree, the, the difference is, to my mind, is, you know, Petro seems to have a build where she'll be a wing, I think, in all likelihood, uh, at Holy Cross, although her ball handling skills and her ability to see the game, I mean, she can certainly give them a mismatch, you know, playing the one or the two uh, at the next level. But what's really interesting to me about Alex George is, you know, at the high school level, a lot of times you don't see the strength uh, from an interior player uh, that you see in Alex George. And she's someone, I don't know what her future will hold. You know, she had a couple of injuries, you know, like you said, one that cost her her entire junior year. Uh, but just as someone who likes to see smart basketball players out on the court, and let's not forget Alex George also won recently an academic scholarship. She was honored at an event uh, at the JCC in Tenafly, New Jersey. Uh, George is someone who, you know, really hope continues her basketball career, just selfishly is someone who enjoys intelligent players. And and to that extent, before we get off of Pastet Valley, let's just talk once more uh, about an additional player, and that's Kelly Smith. Uh, number three on that team, who is on her way to play at Montclair State next year. Kelly Smith, she is undersized for what she brought to that Pastec Valley team. Uh, She was my older daughter's favorite player, someone just remarkable to watch because, and you saw it if you were at the games, she got to the ball first. She understood where the ball was going before it seemed to me anyone else on the court. And she just was able to uh, out-rebound what anyone at her size should have been able to do. I mean, it's just such a logical thing that she's going to Montclair State uh, in order to play that kind of game. But yes, again, to me, watching Kelly Smith, it felt like it was a microcosm for what Pastet Valley is as a program. Oh, absolutely. And I can't count how many times she's led the fast break, too. I mean, the yes. fact that she doesn't just rebound, she has the ball handling to dribble up the court. And, you know, Montclair State's motto is defend, rebound, and run. That is basically Kelly Smith. I don't think mm-hmm. you could find a better fit for a program than Kelly Smith going to Montclair State. Hundred percent, and and she'll have some opportunities to do it because come next year, this Montclair State team, which let's get into, uh, has a number of incredible seniors who are potentially playing their last game every time they go out on the court now. So Montclair State is in the Sweet 16 in the Division Three NCAA basketball tournament. Uh, they have a huge game coming up uh, Friday night against Amherst, uh, an absolute power, but. You can't talk about Montclair State without starting with Katie Sire, who I had the privilege to see uh, play and who does so many things. Uh, tell the listenership you know, what they ought to know about Katie Sire, just the all-world player from Montclair. I mean, the way she takes over a game is just incredible. You know, I've seen her have some slow starts, maybe a scoreless first quarter, a scoreless first half, but she's not going to be held down for long. And once she starts scoring the points just come in bunches. It's really um, impressive to see. She just takes good shots. You know, I don't see her take bad shots. She'll take tough shots sometimes, but she'll finish them, and they'll be good shots for her. So she's just such a great scorer. She clearly sees the court so well, and 
Um, she's been playing really well lately, so it'll be interesting to see what she can do against Amherst, which is a very tough defensive team. But right now, Katie Sire's ninth in the country in scoring with 21.7 points per game. So um, I think she could have another big game this week. Has to have a breakout. Obviously, there's Kate Toby as well. Uh, You know, Kate's back after she missed some time. Can you take me through what her season's been like, starting point guard? Yeah, so she missed three games uh, towards the end of the regular season due to a concussion, but she came back really strong in the NJAC semifinals against Rowan. She had a career-high 21 points. Um, She also has had several games with double-digit assists. So, you know, she's been good at kind of picking up the scoring slack, those games when uh, Katie Sires had a bit of a slow start, but then when she needs to distribute, she can distribute as well. She sometimes turns the ball over too much. That's the area uh, where there's some concern for her, and especially going into what could be a defensive battle, that's a concern. But um, she's a very smart and confident point guard, and uh, she and Katie Sire have just been incredible leaders for this Montclair team. And Taylor Harmon, too, of course, uh, averaging uh, nearly 13 points per game. You know, so it's a senior-dominated squad. Going up against Amherst on Friday night, what can they expect? You talked a little bit about Amherst's defense, but how good are they compared to you know some of the Amherst teams uh, over the past few years that have been right there in the mix? Yeah, you know, I mean, this Amherst team is undefeated right now, 29-0, and uh, they're coming off a national championship, and right now they have balanced scoring. I mean, you're not going to have anyone uh, close to the nation's leaders in scoring when you have such a low-scoring team, but... Um, they seem to move the ball well, and um, they've won some close games. They beat Tufts in the NESCAC final this year, 44-40. to 40. Mm. Um, I think it would be tough for Montclair to get past them in the Sweet 16, but who knows? We'll see. Have to go into Amherst in order to do it, so it'll be a very interesting game. Well, Sarah Summer, how can people follow you and your work, and um, uh, what's the easiest way to do so? I would say my Twitter account might be good. Um, Sarah Sum, S-A-R-A-H-S-O-M-M is the handle. Um, you're very kind to promote my work all the time on this podcast, Howard. And uh, Kindness has nothing to do with it. It is my pleasure. <laughs> and thank you. You, you. you always go out of your way to tag me uh, when you're at these games, so I'm able to keep track as well, which is uh, an extremely helpful thing. Well, Sarah, thank you for taking the time, and I uh, look forward to... Uh, seeing you again soon uh, at a neighborhood gym. Thank you so much. Good to be on.